This is W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Kept the view While all the women came and went Barefoot servants too Outside in the distance A wild cat did growl Two riders were approaching The wind began to howl And this is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis and my husband, Peter. Well, good morning, everyone. Today we have a fun show planned for our listeners. We went back to the Baltimore Museum of Art for an exhibition that Sheila and I actually conceived about six years ago. And I remember way back when we made a list programs we wanted to tackle and share with our community. And one of them was interviewing museum guards and sharing their thoughts on what they do and how they see art in their daily lives on the job in museums and galleries. We finally have it, as the Baltimore Museum of Art currently has an exhibition titled Guarding the Art. This exhibition hopes to break down traditional museum hierarchies on who is creating the art. The exhibition provides a different point of view on looking at art. How does the museum form the narrative or the theme for an exhibition? In this show, the security department at the Baltimore Museum of Art, a.k.a. the Museum Guards, serve as guest curators. What a great idea. The 17 security officers for the art worked in collaboration with the leadership to select and reinterpret works. The diversity and backgrounds of these art guards is reflected in their wonderful selections to make this exhibition complete. A win-win kind of collaboration where the expert art historian and the curator, Dr. Lowry Stokes-Sims, is working with the security staff to put together this exhibition. What fun those meetings must have been. This concept is fabulous, and the exhibition we are talking about today is called Guarding the Art. The exhibition goes until July 10th. 2022, and it's well worth it. The Baltimore Museum of Art is a great cultural institution in the country. Sheila Preter and I have ventured there to bring you several programs on the Artist Experience Radio Show at Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Most recently, we looked at Joan Mitchell at the Abstract Expressionists. We also went to the BMA to see Juan Gris and introduced the difficult art movement of Cubism with a handsome exhibition, and then we saw Richard D. Bitcoin and Henri Matisse as well. The Baltimore Museum of Art represents an important sanctuary in my life. I live three short blocks away in the lovely Homewood neighborhood next to Wyman Park, where the museum is. There is great art there, and it's always worth the trek to Baltimore. Sheila and I have talked much about the Cone Collection and the works of Matisse, Matisse, associated with this important collection at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Go online and see their handsome webpage, artbma.org. Sheila, can you give us an overview of the museum? Because it's amazing. Sure. 
Well, first of all, the museum itself is terrific. It's an old neoclassical building, but with modern upgrades, and the galleries are not overwhelmingly big. I remember that feeling of museum fatigue I used to get going into the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, feeling so diminished with those big halls filled with cabinets of endless objects, way too much stuff that I'd probably never look at, although I've gotten better. I would just have to go sit on a bench and take a nap. <laughs> well, well, the BMA is a nice, comfortable size, and the entrance isn't up those Rockies-type steps where you first see the museum. You bypass those, and you go into the ground floor entrance. But after you check in to get to the exhibit, you go up the stairs and pass the contemporary installation by Micheline Thomas that takes you to a hallway and then past those wonderful Antioch mosaics in a daylit courtyard. So by the time you get to the exhibit, you've been on a mini-tour of some of the ancient and modern history of art, the best of the best in early modern painting. Those Matisses are wonderful. And then from there, you enter the exhibit we're talking about today, Guarding the Art. Well, the unique opportunity to gain perspective on seeing art curated by people that work at the museum and are not necessarily art historians or professional curators is important. Looking at art is an engagement, a dialogue. One does not have to have a degree, an academic degree in anything, never mind art history, to appreciate and engage with art. This is the glory of art, all the arts, in fact. But here, we will talk about visual art. Having a dialogue with art is about your brain and your eyes mulling the visual over. It can be an immediate, intuitive, and visceral reaction, or it could be contemplative and pensive and time-consuming. One brings uh, your own life experience into viewing art. It's that simple. No academic degrees of any kind are necessary. Well, many years ago, I took my uncle to an exhibition where I had a large etching print of a theme about spirituality of my own work in an exhibition at a museum. Well, my uncle was a farmer with a third-grade education. He was a person of the earth, and that's all he knew. He never made art, studied art, or experienced art, and probably never even went to a museum before. He agreed to go to the small museum with me and his family. In the museum, we found my print, and I asked him to take a few minutes to tell me what he thought and what I was trying to say with my art and what he thought about it. He chuckled at first and winced at me with his gorgeous gray-blue eyes, and my aunt and their kids looked at me curiously to what my uncle might even say that could be profound about looking at my work. Almost immediately, he responded, and said, well, it's about a secular young person and a sacred person of the church, like an elderly priest, having the same goals and desires in seeking a relationship with God, no matter what their journey in life could be. And he laughed after he gave me his insights. Well, I was floored, totally blown away, that he put his thoughts together and expressed himself in such a way that was not only spot on, but he totally grasped the goal that I had set out to convey visually. Well, at that moment, I understood that all of humanity can respond to art no matter their education and experience. Well, 
Uh, I'm going to talk about the exhibition. The show is really well put together. The works are so different in content and scale, and somehow each work calls singular attention to itself. I don't know how they did that. The spacing, the lighting. There are also objects. There are ancient objects and contemporary. Uh, Earthenware vessel from 500 B.C. Ecuador a figure of a shaman from the year 1000 in Costa Rica. And then there's a large multimedia piece by Micheline Thomas with collaged photographs, which were made with oil stick and rhinestones and glitter that was done in 2021. Besides each piece is a wall text written by the individual curators. And in the catalog is a photograph and profile of the 17 individuals who participated in this project. One of the themes of the exhibition is curation itself. Maybe that's not a subject of super great interest to us personally, but we can feel the effects of it. This show has a coherence to it. I don't know what the coherence is, I just mean that it doesn't seem jumbled or chaotic. And unlike a lot of shows, you don't feel tugged to get on with it, to go forward faster. As you said, Sheila, you feel quite comfortable looking at a single piece for as long as you, for as long as you continue to see something new in it. There is some explanation in the fact that these are the pieces that rewarded the guards who spent many hours looking at them. You know, way before we started doing this show, I've loved to talk to museum guards just casually about their opinions about the art. One of the encounters that I think about was when you, Peter, and I went to the Met to an exhibit of Richard Serra drawings. They were very huge. I mean, it is Richard Serra hyper-masculine, muscular, black oil sticks paintings or drawings that became objects that seemed to come off the walls. They might be ready to fall on you. And I was talking to the guard there, and he told us that Sarah was a real jerk. But despite being a real jerk, Richard de Serra is considered one of the most preeminent sculptors in the world. We've talked about his enormous torque delicts and the contour wall of weathering steel at the Glenstone. In the 1980s, he became famous for an enormous steel wall that he put up across a park in lower Manhattan, which the people used to having lunch in the park wanted taken down. And it was eventually ordered to be removed after a contentious lawsuit. Sarah really had been a visitor in my house years ago. He just returned from some Central American country, maybe it was Costa Rica, I'm not sure, where he'd retreated to after a man was killed installing one of his pieces, and he'd gotten lice, and his girlfriend had broken up with him, and he was bitter and self-centered, sitting in my living room on this chair that kind of rotate a little bit and he was going on and on so I had the same opinion anyway the guard went to get a catalog to show us the picture of Sarah on the cover and yep some people never change then then the guard took us on a long walk because I said what do you like in this museum and he walked us way through the museum to his favorite part of the Met which was the Astor Chinese Garden Court 
from the 17th century Ming dynasty, and it was so quiet and spacious with the gurgling sound of a water fountain completely away from any noisy activity of the rest of the museum. And another time, at an Antruitt sculpture exhibit in the tower of the National Gallery of Art at the East Wing, the guard said, well, you've spent more time in the show than anyone else, that mostly people just walked in, looked, turned around, and walked out. So he wanted to know why I stayed. He hated the show. He really hated it. It's very minimal sculpture. I didn't know the word for what this they are. This is a very co- common, uh, like, the base of a sculpture. It's called a parallelepipedo. And it's like a cube, but with rectangular sides. It's a very common object. But we don't seem to have a common word in English for it. So I have to say it, parallelepipedo. <laughs> and that and that is what her sculptures are and that's it's the only really word for it but um these rectangular parallelepipedos are different proportions with extremely subtle relationships of color on every facet with subtle changes at the base that that is meant to lift the work up off the floor and the rectangular uh, objects are set up to relate to each other. It really is subtle, and it requires a certain faith that is needed to really engage with these pieces because they're so minimal. But the guard, even though he was stuck in the gallery for days on end without a way to sit down, chose, and was it even a choice, to be offended instead of concentrating. So I asked him if he could listen to music, and he said, I really need this job. (laughs) What a misfit for him and the art, but more power to him to tell me what he thought. I think and hope that now the guards have the opportunity to be educated in the art they're engaged with. Like one of the first shows we did was of the work of the artist Martin Purrier at the Smithsonian Museum of Art. The guard there had met the artist while he was installing the show, and he had some details to tell us, like the fingerprints on the metal and the imagery in this abstract work that added immensely to our visit. That's where we got the idea for interviewing the guards for our show. They spend more time at the art and sometimes with the artist than any normal viewer, but it didn't seem possible because as employees of the museum, they were carefully monitored. And so my our half-baked idea of just getting the guards to talk to us off the record got shelved until the Baltimore Museum elevated the idea to something educational and substantial. Well, thanks for bringing back that memory about the fingerprints on the on the work of uh, Martin Perrier. Well, this is the Artist Experience Radio Program on Tacoma Radio, 94.3 FM. I'm Tom Ksenakis. I'm with my co-hosts, Sheila and Peter Blake. We're talking about Guarding the Art, an exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art when, when the security guards curate art that they look at. I walked into the gallery and was greeted by Grace Hardigan, abstract expressionist, 
painter, large oil painting. I was extremely touched by this. Grace came to Baltimore to teach at the Maryland Institute College of Art at the Hofferger School of Painting, a graduate program. Well, not only was it my alma mater, but I was also an assistant to Grace Hardigan from 1997 to 1998. We talked about Grace Hardigan a lot in our last show when we talked about the Joan Mitchell exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art. I learned so much from Grace Hardigan, and my experience with Grace was priceless. The work in, in the show I'm talking about is Interior, The Creeks, from 1957. Bob Kempton, the museum god, curated this work. Bravo, Bob. The curator, Bob Kempton, beautifully expressed the, the painting and the label that, he had, that was written up next to the work. This early work by Harding is powerful, and the curator here sees the passion, the defiance, and the revelation. Oh, how that accurately describes Grace Hardigan herself. She was so passionate and tough. The word exudes instinct, confidence, and tenacity. Well, thanks, Tom. That's good. So I have this made-up impression, because I really don't know, that Dr. Lowry Stokes Sims, who led the curators, corralled these newly minted guards, newly minted curators, through a series of workshops and she handed up questionnaires, and I could almost read the questions. Why did you choose, choose this work? What draws you to it? What does it mean personally to you? And that's, I don't know that she really asked these questions, but it's all fine and important. But I'm much more interested in how the viewers really experienced the work, the intense emotions that they might have experienced when trying to investigate how that artist made that happen. Like the Carol Lapel painting, The World in Darkness, the curator Sarah Ruark asks, is the darkness a metaphor for ignorance, a metaphor for evil? Well, the painting's horrific. There are two terrible heads painted in an act of violence. I think seeing this painting as a metaphor puts the viewer at a distance from the act of painting. I don't think Appel is trying to teach through metaphor. My experience is that looking at the painting, there is a transfer of the horror that he felt through the, from the artist directly to me. I, I think I see what you mean. You were disappointed that the commentaries by the guest curators, the guards, were sort of, well, they had a, they had a uniform philosophy behind them, even though they described personal responses. And that was the point. You know, the responses, as described in the commentaries, seemed guided by a kind school teacher and didn't resonate with you like your real conversations with guards. Your point about metaphor is very interesting. The guard curator who chose the Appel painting chose it because she had spent many hours experiencing it with real interest and reaction. And these hours were not spent looking at a metaphor. They were spent looking at a painting. Oh, thank you, Peter, for saying that so well. In the abstract paintings, there's only the paint. Like what we described in the Joan Mitchell show two weeks ago. It's the paint, the colors themselves in relationship to each other. The formal elements of composition, the lines, shapes, space, value, form, texture, and color. The rhythms, the, the experience with the paint as material itself. In all 
the representational paintings. The essays were written more about the content, but there doesn't seem to be that these elements are shown to be important in representational paintings, and they are, like in the Winslow Homer of The Farmer's Waiting. Did that little red breaststroke on the elbow of the farmer and the coat of someone in the distance, did that make that painting come alive? And how did it make the quiet time of waiting? I wish we could talk about how the artist paints or sculpt. And even more was the lack of any strong or negative emotion in any of these paintings, like the guards I mentioned that hated the work and the dissection of why. The catalog is very professional, but I think that some of the more powerful feelings were sacrificed and would have lent a greater depth to the exploration. Well, that's an interesting uh, thought there. Uh, I haven't seen the catalog, but that is an interesting thought on, on the representational painting. And thank you for that. Well, Sheila, uh, why don't we talk about Jane Frank's Winter's End, because that's another abstract painting, and I think it's a great one. Oh, me too. Hooray for the curator, Elise Hensley, to pick this terrific work. She said she wanted to showcase a work by a woman who she'd never seen before, and this work has only been shown twice, in 1958 and 1983. Well, it really demonstrates how fickle the art world is, I remember my friend, the painter Gregory Gillespie, saying he didn't want his work to be hidden in private collections, that he wanted museum walls. But your work can be in a museum and easily go into storage and never be seen again, which was ha what happened to this work. But Elise Tensley did a great description of her encounter with this painting. It's hard to translate abstract vision into words. words. This we know because we try to do it all the time. The painting is cold and slushy, icy, more like a landscape, but not literally descriptive or decorative, with dark vertical brushstrokes with bits of color, still cold blues and greens, which might just have tiny bits of red, making the other colors complete and singing, similar to the red bits of the elbow of the farmer in the and the tiny red figure in the distance of the Winslow Homer waiting on an answer, which is my favorite thing about that painting is those red bits. Well, uh, Winslow Homer uses red, and uh, it could have been mentioned in the label, but used red in a marvelous way to grab attention in that little painting. What I w really got me thinking as we're talking here was how... Not one of the guards ever mentioned a single response to a color or the motion in a painting, or most of all, the paint and how it transforms into a pictorial world, which is how I look at paintings. It was kind of painful to me to see that nobody talked about this. Paintings are about paint, the transform transformation in your mind from paint to an experiential world that's partly in your imagination. It's between those two things, the visual, the actual looking, and what happens in your imagination. And the Rothko, I'm going to try to describe it. It's, it's a large vertical canvas, and it's painted dark red with enough transparency 
in that dark red that a little light from the canvas comes through the paint. And it's big enough to fill your eyes. And on top of the dark red ground are three horizontal cloudy rectangles, one over the other, with the background dark red in the spaces between. The top rectangle is a dark black. It's almost an opaque cloud that hovers in front of the canvas. The middle rectangle is a little bit lighter than the dark red ground. It's also dark red, but it hovers coming forward in the space in front of the canvas, or it can recede behind that picture plane. And the nat and the narrow bottom rectangular cloud is a little bit darker, not quite as dark as the ground, but it's there as a gentle, slightly luminous base. What happens when you quiet down and let that painting fill your eyes is that the middle luminous cloud feels very light and it either hovers in the space in front or it recedes like an open window behind the picture plane. And that dark top is heavy and dense and then the bottom seems to recede. This is wondrous. It's paint, but it exists in that space between your eyes and the canvas, an experience of stillness, but it takes time. Well, Sheila, thank you so, so much for that. That was very beautifully said of that great Rothko. And thanks for, thanks for hammering away on that theme, chipping away. I don't think we can assume that because the commentaries don't describe the paint and the painted elements the rhythm and the colors, that the curators were not responding to them. The deep experience of art comes through practice looking at great art, not through words. And guards have a lot of practice. I think the truth that might be revealed in this exhibition must still be hidden to us. It must be. What about each painting makes it a favorite of someone who spends a great deal of time looking at art and looking at people who were looking at art. The commentaries are an attempt by the guest curators to explain what the piece communicates, the meanings that they see in it. But you're interested in something else, to clarify to yourself and then to others how those meanings are created and how they thrill us. Just this week, I copied down a quote in Lord Jim, Joseph Conrad remarks on that mysterious, almost miraculous power of producing striking effects by means impossible of detection, which is the last word of highest art. So, the striking effects by means impossible of detection, but you want to detect those means and describe that power. For example, we talked in our last show about ambiguity. One thing about ambiguity is that it facilitates transformation. Is the key F major or A minor? You can't tell, and then the music transforms. So right before we entered this exhibition, we stopped to look at a Matisse painting of an interior with a dog under the table. You said that Matisse transformed everything into a pattern like there was a potted plant on a table, and it was transformed into a pattern of flat leaves. 
among the most wonderful things about Matisse is the tension that he gets between the objects that he's painting and the patterns that they make. It's all lively pattern, but the way the shapes and colors become one lively pattern and your eye must discern the difference between object and pattern because on the flat canvas, it's all paint and it's all the same. And then to make sense of it, your mind puts it into space and then back to flatness. There are some wonderful Matisse paintings in the Cone Collection, to be sure. So just make sure and see them when you go to this exhibit. And in this show, one of the curators picked a Max Beckman painting that I love too. It's a still life with a large shell, which has a table on where there's a large conch shell, front and center. The mouth of that shell is painted with the most beautiful large brush stroke of cadmium red paint. It's just like swirls that mouth right around. And sitting behind everything is the head of a woman with those same slashes of red paint in her headscarf. The woman, the wine glass, which is almost carelessly painted with green and yellow, and the striped curtain echoing the green. The shapes of the table and the conch shell all have equal importance. Beckman, in his younger days, painted powerful allegorical works, big triptychs, but sometimes he spun off some of Matisse's ideas, like in this still life. Just Matisse kept everything like anxiety out of his work, whereas Beckman is, Beckman's work, even in a still life, is full of darkness, even when he's being a bit funny. This painting of his is one of my favorites in the exhibit. Oh, interesting, Sheila. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of Beckman, but that uh-huh. one, for some reason, I kind of like the big old... The big triptych myself. Me too. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. But, uh, well, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about more art in this wonderful exhibition, Guarding the Art, and more abstract expressionist art. Gentlemen, he said, I don't need your organization. Shine your shoes I've moved your mountains And marked your cards Bleeding is burning Either brace yourself For elimination Or else your hearts Must have the courage For the changing of the gods Peace will come With tranquility Welcome back. This is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with our co-host, 
Tom Zanakis, and my husband, Peter Blake. You're listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio, 94.3 FM. We're talking about Guarding the Art, which is an exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art. A new kind of exhibition where the guards of the art at the museum are the guest curators. What a great idea for a show. And the show is really good. Guarding the Art at Baltimore Museum of Art that goes until July 10th, 2022. I guess we'll be continuing talking about abstract expressionism in the exhibition, and there were some gems. One was by Philip Guston, which the work was titled Oracle. We had a a whole show on him years ago, and he was a very enigmatic painter and a friend of Grace Hardigan's. We talked in our previous show about his controversial works about Jewish people being targeted by the KKK. His depictions of KK-hooded people in his work has, has sparked controversy. As again curated by Chris Koo, who said that Gustin was about freedom and the, uh, the ability to, for one to express themselves no matter what. Well, this work, titled Oracle, uh, from 1974, it's a, it's a large canvas, a, a bit cartoony, which was very, very often Philip Gustin's style, which has these bubblegum pink hues with reds and grays. I find them mysterious and enigmatic, and it definitely has a surrealist sensibility. As the curator states on the museum label, he encourages visitors to engage in conversations with the guards because change starts with conversation, and that's something I totally agree with. Right, that piece by Philip Guston is a good one for the exhibition for exactly that reason, the the need, particularly since there was a controversy at the the National Gallery about his work, um, the need for conversation. And secondly, because at first glance, this work probably strikes viewers as very strange and not art. It doesn't look like regular art. But this show is not about first glances. Uh, The Gustin image is of a desolate cosmos. Cosmos is the word I like to use for the place that's imagined in paintings and poetry, in cave paintings, medieval Christian paintings, modern paintings, the place in the painting is not a picture of a real place like in a National Geographic photo. It's a cosmos, separate from and parallel to this world that we live in, where mythic events take place. Gustin's cosmos is a fearful place, a vast pink plain. What's that color, Sheila? (laughs) (laughs) It's cadmium red deep with white. His palette for these paintings couldn't be simpler. Mars black, cadmium red deep, cadmium orange light, cobalt blue, permanent green, and zinc white. That's the palette. When Gustin died, there were about 75 tubes of cadmium red deep that were left in his studio. Oh, my goodness, Sheila. Thanks for sharing that sad fact. I had no idea there must have been a, a a ton of white and black as well with his last uh, with you know his his paintings being being uh, those colors in fact also yeah so in this the plane is littered with empty shoes just as Auschwitz was lit by a bare light bulb that looks like a globe or a fortune telling ball 
populated with a couple of clan hoods, and at the center is a furrowed forehead in profile with a single huge eye. I empathize with that creature, who I think might represent the artist looking at the reality of life. So let me quote Rilke. With all its eyes, the creature gazes into the open. Rilke was contrasting creatures with people who don't look into the open. Normal people look backward. Here, according to Gustin, the artist opens his eyes, looks into America, and sees people quite willing to use cruelty in the service of reaction. Even here in America, we have our own Nazis. In this painting, it all takes place in a pink, mythic, allegorical cosmos, without illusions, except one, the power of art, which the curator described as freedom. And that, you know, that Rothko ditto with the cosmos thing. Rothko developed these floating, luminous oblongs, and, and you can see them as floating colors, and I see them as a cosmos, like a scene from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Well, thank you, Peter, again. Well, another thing that I really enjoyed about this exhibition is that the familiar names that we've actually talked about in, in, in previous shows came up again. And of course, this is pure coincidence, but we revisited these works of artists in the Baltimore Museum show, like Alma Thomas, and that we, sh we reviewed at the Phillips Collection recently, and there's Evening Glow is the title of the work from 1973. It's pure inspiration, uh, as the curator Bob Kempton curated again, and I think Mr. Kempton and I have some very similar tastes as the pieces he picked I seem to gravitate towards, which I find very interesting. Two other African-American artists uh, were along that same wall. There is a lovely Hale Woodruff painting titled Normandy Landscape. It's a lovely work reminiscent of Impressionist landscape and specifically American Impressionist landscapes to me. Woodruff did venture to France from 1927 to 1931 after winning this prestigious Harmon Prize in 1926. Then he was called a distinguished Negro artist. Well, Hale Woodruff was a wonderful African-American artist that was one of the many artists that began to deal with issues of social justice in his day. And this landscape is atypical of his most powerful works. This appears as an early work, and it, he must have studied and seen these Impressionist art when he was in Paris. This landscape is very traditional, and it's reminiscent of the textured post-Impressionist works of Van Gogh. It's a very well-done painting. Uh, on that same wall is a Sam Gilliam, another African-American artist and local favorite here in the D.C. metro area and a member of the D.C. Colorfield Painters. I am not a fan of Sam Gilliam at all, but this is a fabulous work. I enjoy its color and its scale, its unusual beveled frame, that's extremely unusual. And it's the, it's wrapped, the canvas is wrapped around this beveled edge. It's titled Blue Edge, and it's acrylic on canvas. The curator guard, Dominic Malari, discusses Gilliam's love of music and jazz, and Mr. Morelli describes it in that way. Malari ca calls it a melodic mess, and I agree with Gilliam's <laughs> yeah. work, uh, which uh, are a lot to me with that. 
But uh, this one seems a little more complete and more unified in a harmonious way. Gilliam is a household visual name in D.C., and this work is definitely a good one. But now I have another museum story that I like to share about a traditional piece. Well, the Giverna da Vinci is the only Leonardo da Vinci painting in the U.S., and it's at the National Gallery. And the Leonardo da Vinci did not paint many paintings. There was only about 40 that he painted. And this one is a, a small two-sided work, which is, again, the one of the crown jewels of the National Gallery of Art Collection in Washington. Well, one day I was in that small room that was not so crowded and I had a sweet conversation with a very animated security guard with this about this valuable painting. His job is to guard the art in this room, but particularly this work. Well, in this room, the tourists are constantly photographing the work. It's incessant. It's a masterwork by da Vinci. The guard must be on his toes. So I asked him, do you ever think about a heist on one of these paintings? And uh, does that make you a little nervous, I asked him. And he said to me, like bluntly, he was very animated when he responded, easier to break into the White House than to, than to steal this painting. No one will get to this art, he said. It's bolted to the floor, and there's a security device on the ceiling that you can't see. He said it's impossible to steal. He said that the only thing would get this off the floor was an atom bomb. And, you know, he was laughing, t telling me, but I think he was also very serious about it. And I've had many uh, conversations with art about with security guards like Sheila and Peter. And these are all kinds of people. Some are talkative, some are severe, some are knowledgeable of the art. And some of them are very, very observant. And some of them also, some reason, are on their cell phones a lot. So, you know, you get the range of security guards. Well, some of the works that... that in, in the show God in the Art were very traditional, like Jacopo Bassamo's The Animals Boarding the Ark from 1570 to 1579. I'm actually familiar with Jacopo Bassano's work, and he was an excellent draftsman in the post-Renaissance standards um, after the Renaissance, and it's it's a traditional biblical theme of Noah and the Ark with a host of critters ready for the art. By the way, he's actually painted this theme twice, and they're both two of his most famous paintings, so he must have liked animals, and he must have liked Noah. But so if you like animals, you have to look at this painting because it's well done. Firstly, it's very large, and the distant landscape beyond the ark is really well done. But it's a very curious choice in this exhibition. Did the artist miss any animal couples like that, that were supposed to be in the ark? Well, you need to go and find out yourself because there is definitely a host of critters in this painting. <laughs> there are no duds in this show. Uh, I, liked, I liked having that 16th century Bible story narrow Grace Hardigan abstraction, and then there's this whimsical teapot in between. That's true. <laughs> Well, I'd like to address some of the three-dimensional art that Sheila has also talked about in the show, and I think they were very strong, but 
Some ways I felt they were gobbled up by all these large paintings. The showcases were really, you know, gobbled them up. And there's a there's this case of indigenous works by anonymous artists, and to me that's really important, from the Americas of the South, from Ecuador, Colombia, and Costa Rica. These are beautiful ceramic works that are powerful. In the case, there is an empty white small pedestal for work that's not there. And the curator of these works, who I think might have been Ricardo Castro, chose them as they, these were the closest thing to his ancestry as a Puerto Rican. All other works by Puerto Rican artists were not available for this curated exhibition, which is a shame. But Mr. Castro chose, chose to, put, to keep an empty pedestal to symbolize the missing art by a Puerto Rican artist. Nice idea. The works in the case are particularly strong. There's another case of indigenous works from North America, a small totem from Northwest Canada uh, done by the Haida peoples, was curated by Sarah Ruark. This is a stunning and intimate totem, beautiful. And there's a water bottle vessel, vessel from the Solomon Islands that is partly woven, and there's a bottleneck basket from California. These are truly magnificent anonymous works, and they're functional, and they're naturally made objects as well. The curator, Joan Smith, selected another superb group of art. The fact that they're anonymous artists to me is so important. Does anybody want to talk about the chair, 50 Dozen, (laughs) by designer and fabricator Jeremy Alden from 2008? What fun and beauty at the same time in that room. Yeah, I love the chair. I really did. It's made of, I didn't count them, but seemingly 50 dozen Ticonderoga yellow pencils. And it's enclosed in a plexiglass case so you can't sit on it, which would be a disaster if you tried. But the pencils are laid out with their yellow shafts and the green and gold tops holding the pink eraser and uses use that as a design element. It's seen as a joke on the guards who never get to sit down. Some of them feel that way. But for me, it's a great combination of materials, aesthetics, and function, even though it's probably not functional. But it had a lightheartedness, as did the porcelain teapot, which was a two-sided little ditty. I remember at concerts, sometimes the orchestra would play as an encore, a little lighthearted piece that was kind of like a little dessert. And this funny little tchotchka with a silly boy's face on one side and a girl's face on the other, this little teapot, it has that same place. It's adorable, and I'm so glad it's in the show. Well, you know, I think it's really important that you you can have a a lighthearted piece of art. I mean, I think it really... Uh, not all art, art has to be heavy, heavy duty, right? Well, on that note, I have to share this anecdote here on the radio about the relationships between the guards and watching the art and the art that they're looking at for extended periods of time in a day. Imagine looking intently at the same art for hours on end. It might be exciting, but I have never really had that experience. But I have to share this story, and you can see I'm chuckling. You can hear I'm chuckling already. In the early 1990s, I had three works of mine at an exhibition at the Chrysler Museum in Norfolk, Virginia. It's a really nice museum. 
and actually I've spent a lot of hours there. And one of the works in the, exi- in the exhibition was a work that I titled, I Have the Scars to Prove It. It's, a scul- it's sculptural drawings on four panels. The work dealt with the relationships between emotion emotional and physical scars that everybody goes through in life. The four drawings in the piece were divided by a mirror and you could line yourself up to the mirror with all these arrows and you could kind of put your face to see where your scars are on your face if you have any. But the drawings were a detail of my face, my hand, my knee, and my private parts. Well, One afternoon, I ventured over to the museum to see my works on display, and I wanted to hang out there and see what people were saying about my art. So yes, I was eavesdropping about my own art, and there was a security guard stationed by my art, and I said hello, and I asked what he thought about the art that I was pointing to, which was my own art, and he answered, oh man, this is the best seat in the house. And... (laughs) Uh, you know, I chuckled, and uh, he says, you hear all kinds of comments about this art and this piece, and especially when the people see the detailed drawings of the artist's private parts. And so I kind of was listening, and then I said, I, I finally confessed that I was the artist. And he said, so this is you? And, <laughs> and he really got tickled. And then he proceeded to tell me some of the comments he heard while museum visitors were looking at the specific drawing of my privates. And he said that there was a, a couple there, an elderly couple, and, and, and the woman of the couple asked her husband, what is this, dear? I can't really make it out. What am I looking at? And the husband replied, uh, looking at his wife, Oh, it doesn't really matter, dear. You haven't seen it in years. And the security guard was hysterical when he was telling me the story, and so was I. So this is just an anecdote of how the security guards kind of listen in to the comments about art, and in this case, my own art. Well, there's a mixed-media piece by a young and energetic artist named Micheline Thomas, which is called Resist Number 2. And this mixed-media large acrylic paint panel is addresses the here and now about what's happening in contemporary and uh, world and contemporary work. And it's probably the most contemporary in this exhibition. And the work depicts faces and images in the current civil rights struggles of the now, and it references some of the struggles of the past. It, it, it depicts uh, uh, George Floyd and Freddie Gray, who is from Baltimore. And then uh, it, there's an image of James Baldwin, and there's some other images of the oppressed and also the oppressors. And to me, uh, th- th- related to my, my anecdote, it's a work that's both personal and universal at the same time. And it reminded me of my own series that I did in the late 1990s about these emotional and physical scarring. Resist number two really kind of hurts. It's discussing the civil rights issues we're having right now here in America. So I kind of plug it in here because I wanted to congratulate Micheline Thomas with this very, very wild mixed-media acrylic piece. Sheila and Peter, any closing comments? 
Well, yes. Uh, I discovered something myself when I said earlier that it takes practice to love art. Practice is something you do repeatedly, and in doing it, you get better at it. Learning is important too, but much less than you think. It's really practice that develops the ability to experience the richness in art. Loving abstract expressionism is not going to develop through reading or listening to experts. You have to look for yourself and discover stuff. The principle of this exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art is curation by people with a lot of practice in looking. Well, several years ago, I gave Peter's mother a small framed pastel. It's a landscape that I'd made on a trip where, that we had all taken together to the Pacific coast of Canada. It's really small, pretty lovely. It's very quiet, atmospheric, blues and grays and misty mountains and misty water. So Peter and I had parked the car there in Tofino, British Columbia, and our view looked over the re- rooftops at the bay. So as a thank you to for that trip, I gave Peter's mother this piece, but she never hung it up. And the little pastel stayed at the bottom of her closet till finally Peter and I just decided to take it home. <laughs> so last week, Peter was visiting his mother in her retirement community, and she asked him about the pastel. So Peter told her, well, we'd taken it home, and she said, well, Sheila's talented, but I don't like pictures with power lines and mailboxes. Those power lines really gently sweep through and across the space and subtly divide the composition. They're there for a reason. Artists like Edward Hopper and Charles Birchfield and many photographers see the beauty of power lines in landscapes as part of their compositions. But it woke me up to how I see things so differently from most people, and including the guards at the Baltimore Museum. Well, I think that's a wonderful thing, actually. You know, we all could take in art and look at it and respond to it in a different way. And I think, you know, it goes back to the trite thing, different strokes for different blokes, right? You know, everybody, <laughs> everybody has a different view of things. Well, Guarding the Art is an inventive and interesting exhibition currently on view at the Baltimore Museum of Art. The exhibition offers the community a new perspective in looking at art. The exhibition visually breaks down the hierarchies of who is talking and choosing the art and who is writing about it. In other words, who is curating the art on the walls of a museum or gallery? We often don't think about that. And the exhibition provides a new point of view. Does that not sound familiar? Well, this is one of our missions at the Artist Experience Radio Program here at Tacoma Radio 94.3. The conception of this exhibition is totally in line with what we have been doing every other Saturday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. at the Artist Experience Radio Program. We're giving you a different way of looking at art. And the exhibition Guarding the Art, it goes on till July 10th, 
2022. Sheila, what about our next show? You know, we have one show, and then we're up and at them like the next day, thinking about our next show and writing about it. Well, with spring in the air, what do you think? Anything? <laughs> oh, man, you are putting me on the spot, Tom, because I just, I feel like, okay, we're just talking about this show, but and we'll find something great. But if you listeners listen to WOWD, you will find that just about Thursday or Friday before the the show is going to be aired, it gets announced of what the show will be. Oh, that's right. Thank Mm -hmm. you for uh, reminding our listeners. Experience art and the visual and everything you do. And thanks for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. Said the joker to the thief It's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine Plowmen dig my ear None of them along the line Know what any bit is worth The thiefy kindly spoke There are many here among us Who feel that life is but a joke But you and I, we've been through that And this is not our fate So let us not talk falsely now The hour is getting late Yeah.